We all know that a human heart normally beats on average at 75 beats per minute. That means that the heart beats 100,000 regular beats a day. That is one beat every 0.8 seconds of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every year. However, for some people, the rhythmic lub-dub, lub-dub, lub-dub of the heart is not as precise as a Rolex. This happens when the heart's electrical conduction system goes haywire and the person develops atrial fibrillation, leading to less efficient blood circulation and an irregular pulse that can eventually cause an embolic stroke. The first human ECG depicting atrial fibrillation was published by Willem Eindhoven in 1906. However, atrial fibrillation was discovered much earlier than that, as it was first described in animals by William Harvey in 1628. Today, our patient has atrial fibrillation, and you are the doctor. Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is on atrial fibrillation and is entitled The Racing Heart. Time for a minute physiology. The precise mechanisms that cause atrial fibrillation are still not completely understood. There are many existing theories that try to explain how atrial fibrillation is generated and sustained. These theories are not unconnected, and it is probably a combination of them that generates atrial fibrillation. The two most recognized proposed models are the focal trigger hypothesis and the multiple wavelet theory. Atrial fibrillation has two requirements for it to come to life. These are an initiating event and a permissive atrial substrate that allows it to persist. If we take the focal trigger theory, for example, which is the most supported as studies have demonstrated that a focal source of atrial fibrillation can be identified in humans and that isolation of the source can eliminate atrial fibrillation. The initiating or the trigger point is usually a focal point in the pulmonary veins. It may also arise at other sites, such as a superior vena cava. In a normal healthy heart, there is little cardiac muscle tissue that extends to the pulmonary veins. These cardiac tissues are called sleeves. The cardiac muscles in these sleeves have a similar structure and conduction abilities as a normal atrial cardiac cell. Almost the same, but not identical. For some unknown reason, these cells have increased automaticity and will be able to generate their own action potential. This is actually present in all normal atrial cells, but is kept in check by other mechanisms. This provides the kickstart for atrial fibrillation. Remember that we said that atrial fibrillation needs two conditions. The second condition is permissible tissue. Again, this is directly related to the fact that the cardiac tissue and the sleeves are not precisely identical, yet are in proximity to each other. Because the atrial cells have slightly different electrical properties and their conduction times are off by just milliseconds, this allows the electrical activity to be trapped in a re-entrant circuit between the two cell types. Afterward, this electrical activity spreads to the rest of the atria and down to the ventricles in an irregular manner, resulting in the irregular heartbeat. After a period of time, the electrical properties of the atrial cells change in what is called remodeling, and multiple tiny circuits form in the atria. 
This is why the longer the atrial fibrillation lasts, the more difficult it is to cardiovert back to sinus rhythm. Hence the saying, atrial fibrillation begets atrial fibrillation. These changes are initially reversible if sinus rhythm is restored, but may become permanent and be associated with structural changes if atrial fibrillation is allowed to continue. Mechanically, with the atria not contracting properly, there is loss of atrial kick and blood flow into the ventricles in the last part of diastole. Additionally, the turbulent flow in the atria can lead to the formation of clots, which can then embolize through the left ventricle and up to the brain or the rest of the body. Atrial fibrillation prevalence increases with age, making it the most common arrhythmia in patients older than 65 years old. If you look at patients older than 80 years old, the rate is approximately 10%. Furthermore, 70% of individuals with atrial fibrillation are between the ages of 65 and 85 years old. Up to 90% of patients with new-onset atrial fibrillation are asymptomatic. Except for embolization phenomena, such as stroke or bowel ischemia, the symptoms associated with new-onset atrial fibrillation are primarily due to the fast heart rate. Thus, many patients have dramatic improvement in their sense of well-being when the ventricular rate is slowed. Patients can be unstable on presentation. That's why it is vitally important that your first step be the assessment of airway, breathing, and circulation, as well as vital signs, as this will decide the kind of management and intervention you will provide to your patient. An unstable patient can be defined by any of the following features. Hypotension, decreased level of consciousness, uncontrolled angina or ischemia, or decompensated congestive heart failure. On history, it is important to determine the clinical pattern of the atrial fibrillation, either paroxysmal, persistent, long-standing persistent, or permanent. It is also essential to obtain the time of onset, precipitating factors such as exertion, sleep, caffeine, alcohol use, and duration and frequency of symptoms, along with complications and coexisting disorders such as renal failure or infection. Past medical history should assess for underlying cardiac or thyroid disease, as well as social habits that might increase a patient's risk, such as illicit drug use or alcohol use. There are many known common etiologies and risk factors that predispose to the development of atrial fibrillation. One mnemonic that can be helpful to use is PIRATES. P is for pulmonary embolism, pulmonary disease, or post-operative. I is for ischemic heart disease and idiopathic. R is for rheumatic valvular disease, meaning mitral stenosis or regurgitation. A for anemia, alcohol use, or age. T is for thyroid disease, generally hyperthyroidism. E is for elevated blood pressure, electrocution, or enlargement of left atria. And S is for sleep apnea, sepsis, or surgery. On physical exam, heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, and oxygen saturation are particularly important in evaluating hemodynamic stability and adequacy of rate control in atrial fibrillation. Significant findings may be absent if atrial fibrillation is paroxysmal. If present, the most common finding on physical exam is an irregular pulse and tachycardia. 
it is important to use your physical exam to identify possible etiologies. Look for signs of cardiac disease, including valvular disease, underlying lung disease, or signs of DVT or PE. A goiter may be present, which might indicate hyperthyroidism. It is also very important to assess the patient's volume status, as both hyper- and hypovolemia can lead to the worsening of atrial fibrillation. Lastly, look for evidence of embolic complications by evaluating for any neurological deficit or any sign of ischemia in the bowel or limbs. On to our workup. Most of the time, an ECG or a rhythm strip on a cardiac monitor will be available to you before examining the patient. If not, and if you suspect atrial fibrillation, the first step will be to obtain a full ECG, as it is the key investigation to diagnose atrial fibrillation. A typical atrial fibrillation ECG shows a regularly irregular, narrow complex tachycardia with no P waves seen. It is important to remember that if a patient is adequately rate controlled, there may not be tachycardia on the ECG. In atrial fibrillation, instead of P waves, F waves may be seen as fibrillatory waves. The QRS complexes may be wide if there is a bundle branch block. Unless the heart is under excess sympathetic or parasympathetic stimulation, the ventricular rate is usually between 80 and 180 beats per minute. It is essential to pay attention to the ECG signs of associated cardiac disease, such as left ventricular hypertrophy and pre-excitation. You also should look for evidence of myocardial ischemia on the ECG. Further workup includes blood work to assess for predisposing conditions, such as anemia, electrolyte abnormalities, renal dysfunction, and thyroid dysfunction. Do not order troponins unless you are suspecting ischemia. Assessment of renal function, particularly in patients for whom anticoagulation may be started, is important. Thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH, should be obtained in all patients at least once, even if there are no symptoms suggested of hyperthyroidism. Once the patient is stabilized, you should also obtain a transthoracic echocardiogram, or a TTE. A TTE can evaluate the size of the atria, which can help you decide if this is chronic or acute atrial fibrillation and what the chances are of recurrence. An echocardiogram will also help you rule out valvular causes for atrial fibrillation. This is important because, as we will discuss, valvular atrial fibrillation has a different management with respect to anticoagulation. There are two broad management issues that need to be addressed early in patients with new-onset atrial fibrillation. The prevention of systemic embolization and the choice between a rhythm or rate control strategy. For most patients with new-onset atrial fibrillation and who are in atrial fibrillation at the time of presentation, rate control will precede any attempt to restore sinus rhythm, otherwise known as rhythm control. The principal exception are patients who are hemodynamically unstable, who require immediate synchronized cardioversion. If you are called overnight to see a patient with atrial fibrillation and tachycardia, first assess the patient's stability. Once you've deemed the patient stable, your next step should be to attempt rate control with one of two classes of agents, either beta blockers or non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. Both of these medications are first-line agents for rate control in atrial fibrillation. 
Examples are metoprolol as a beta blocker or diltiazem as a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. Your target heart rate for patients with atrial fibrillation should be less than 110 beats per minute. These drugs can be administered either intravenously or orally, but do cause some hypotension. It is important then, if your patient has low blood pressure, to not give these medications. In patients who are hypotensive or unresponsive to the calcium channel blocker or beta blocker, amiodarone is another option. Caution should be exercised in those who are not receiving anticoagulation, as amiodarone can promote cardioversion and thus embolization of a clot that may have formed in the atria. Another option in the acute setting is digoxin. Digoxin is rarely used as monotherapy and is mainly indicated for patients who have atrial fibrillation in addition to heart failure with reduced left ventricular function. Both digoxin and amiodarone are cleared renally, so you should be cautious if patients have renal failure as this can lead to digoxin or amiodarone toxicity. Lastly, in patients with pre-excitation syndrome such as WPW or Wolf-Parkinson-White, as well as atrial fibrillation, blocking the AV node in some of these patients may lead to atrial fibrillation impulses to be transmitted exclusively down the accessory pathway, and this can result in ventricular fibrillation. If this does happen, the patient will require immediate defibrillation. Beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, digoxin, and intravenous amiodarone are contraindicated in these patients. Flecainide can be used instead, but likely at the stage you should be seeking consultation from a cardiologist. Once ventricular rate control is achieved, a decision regarding the long-term management of atrial fibrillation should be made. For instance, should we pursue rhythm or rate control? Studies have demonstrated no difference between the two strategies, and since then, rate control has become the standard of care. However, there are certain situations in which rhythm control is indicated. These include patients who are very symptomatic and not responding to rate control, or patients who are younger than 65 years of age who present with new and acute onset atrial fibrillation. Caution should be taken for any stable patient with a prior history of atrial fibrillation or a markedly dilated left atrium greater than 5.5 centimeters on echocardiogram before a cardioversion. All patients for whom cardioversion is considered should be assessed for a left atrial thrombus. Low-risk patients are patients who've had atrial fibrillation for less than 48 hours, with no previous history of embolic stroke or valvular pathology, and are at low risk for having formed a thrombus in their atria. The Canadian Cardiovascular Society guidelines recommend cardioversion consideration only for patients who have less than 48 hours of atrial fibrillation who have a CHAD-65 score of less than 2, or if a patient has been on appropriate anticoagulation for at least 3 weeks. All other patients should have a left atrial thrombus excluded via imaging prior to cardioversion. We take these precautions because rhythm control can precipitate an embolic stroke if a thrombus is present. Now, why would we attempt rhythm control for a patient who might be asymptomatic? The reason is that some patients with new-onset atrial fibrillation who report being asymptomatic actually have some subtle symptoms such as fatigue, especially when palpitations are not a prominent component of their presentation. These subtler symptoms are sometimes only realized after the restoration of sinus rhythm, which is why some physicians will at least offer a rhythm control approach to new-onset atrial fibrillation patients. A rhythm control strategy uses either electrical cardioversion, 
medications such as flecainide, propafenone, dofetilide, amiodarone, and sotalol, or ablation, either catheter-based or surgical. The choice of electrical or pharmacologic cardioversion differs based on the efficacy and safety of the approach and depends on the patient's comorbidities, stability, and comfort of the clinician to use one or the other approach. For the first episode, electrical cardioversion is preferred in most cases. This is particularly true for younger patients who are less than 65 years of age. Once you've decided on a rate or rhythm control strategy, consider if your patient will require anticoagulation. There are two clinical situations where anticoagulation needs to be considered. First, all patients who have either paroxysmal, persistent, or permanent atrial fibrillation are at increased risk of yearly systemic embolization. The Canadian Cardiovascular Society guidelines recommends using the CHAD-65 score to determine the risk of embolization. The CHAD-65 score includes age greater than 65, congestive heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, or stroke. All components get one point, except for stroke, which gets two points. Anybody who is over the age of 65 or has a CHAD score greater than one should have anticoagulation. Options for anticoagulation include a direct oral anticoagulant, such as rivaroxaban, apixaban, or less commonly dabigatran, or a vitamin K antagonist, such as warfarin. However, if the cause of atrial fibrillation is thought to be valvular, for instance, the patient also has mitral valve stenosis, warfarin is the agent of choice. DOEX have not been approved in this setting. Patients with a CHAD-65 score of less than 1 do not need anticoagulation. The second situation in which anticoagulation requires consideration is patients for whom cardioversion to sinus rhythm is being considered. Patients who are receiving cardioversion who have had atrial fibrillation of more than 48 hours or of unknown duration require at least three weeks of effective anticoagulation before cardioversion. As mentioned earlier, low-risk patients can be cardioverted without anticoagulation. All patients who receive cardioversion, regardless of if they are low or high risk, require four weeks of anticoagulation following cardioversion. For patients who need more urgent cardioversion for any number of reasons, a transesophageal echocardiogram should be completed prior to cardioversion to rule out left atrial thrombus. Cardioversion can proceed if no thrombus is detected. One important point to keep in mind is that any hemodynamically unstable patient should be cardioverted immediately with synchronized cardioversion, regardless of anticoagulation history. This is part of your ACLS guidelines for tachycardia management. Time for a Medicine Minute. Results from the atrial fibrillation follow-up investigation of rhythm management, or FIRM trial, as well as rate control versus electrical cardioversion, or RACE trial, led to the development of consensus guidelines that recommend an initial rate control strategy for the majority of asymptomatic patients with atrial fibrillation. These trials demonstrated that a rate control strategy for management of atrial fibrillation is non-inferior to rhythm control. Thank you for listening to today's episode on atrial fibrillation entitled The Racing Heart. This episode is written by Dr. Mohamed Al-Ruwaya, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Matthew Sibold, cardiology, and Dr. Araz Wine, general internal medicine. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. 
The Internet Work series was created by Allison Light and is developed by Leah Karianopoulos and Zara Morali and overseen by Dr. Daniel Brant Vegas. Music production by Lakshma Vizantha Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic at www.theinternetwork.com where you can also find associated resources. If you like this episode or like our series, please support by liking and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Internet Work and we'll see you again soon.